Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, sorry, on hearing the report, the, ten, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared what the people would, that, that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be someone, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering the disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts, 
and from house to house. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. And uh, an outline of where we're going is in here. Good to have your Bibles open. If you haven't got a Bible, stick up your hand and some helpful person will... Alicia, how helpful. She's going to come around and, and grab one. So uh, give you one. So, great if everyone could be looking at that. Let's pray together. Catherine, do you need a Bible? I think you do. Down the front here. Don't be shy, sticking up your hand. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can be here today. Your words are life and your words bring new life. Uh, so we pray, um, give us receptive hearts. And for those of us who already have new life, uh, please speak to us uh, through the words of the apostles uh, that our lives may better reflect your plans. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, we've lived through this crazy week, right? The week that will go down as unique in Australian history, the week of toilet paper hysteria. <laughs> Coronavirus mania, people in a frenzy, emptying supermarket shelves, not of what you'd think, not of tin soup, not of pasta, not even of chocolate, right? But toilet paper. I had a friend who passed a lady coming out of a supermarket. She had a trolley full of toilet paper. She came out and said, I don't know what I just did. <laughs> every living organism, every system, faces threats to its existence. These threats can be external or internal. The coronavirus is an example of an external threat that can become internal if someone gets the virus. What of the church? What of the gospel? What of new life in Christ? What of the rapid spread of the word of God? What are the threats? As we've been working our way through Acts, and if you've come in today, welcome, good to see you. We're picking up the story um, in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we'll begin. But as we've been working our way, we've been following the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ from its very beginnings in Jerusalem which is intended then to reach to the ends of the earth. And as this news is being shared, the church is growing, but there are threats to growth. So in the passages just before and after the one that we're looking at, there are internal threats. Last week, we covered lying and disunity. There's an internal threat. Next week, conflict. In the verse just before Chapter 5, verse 11, the disunity was dealt with but at a price. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This was the death of a man and a woman in the church at the Apostle Peter's word. You can imagine the impact that that would have. Sobering everyone up immediately. You read it in verse 13, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded. We can understand, I mean, would you join them if you thought doing so you might drop dead at the apostle's word? You know, if he knew of a secret sin going on in your life? Whoa. The reality is, of course, that on that, uh, God's discipline of Ananias and Sapphira was an important disciplining of the church at its very beginning, much as in the same way Israel, the nation of Israel, was disciplined when they first went in and took possession of the promised land by the death of Achan in Joshua chapter 5. But of course, the people there in the first century, they wouldn't have known that. <laughs> they wouldn't have known it was a one-off. So there was the internal threat of discipline and fear. 
which both of those are potential barriers to growth and new life. Today's passage, the rest of chapter five, is about an external threat, the threat of opposition. Next week in chapter six, we'll swing back to another internal threat, the threat of conflict. But before we get to today's threat, in verses 12 to 16, we see how God keeps the church growing despite the internal threat of fear. And he does it through the apostles. In verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people so that despite the threat of fear in verse 13, nevertheless, in verse 14, more and more people, men and women, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And it was so obvious to everyone that God was with the apostles It was so obvious that people began laying out their sick on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Isn't that astounding? As bizarre as that seems, later on, much the same thing happens to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. In chapter 19, when he's in Ephesus, um, people are bringing handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul has touched and give them to the sick and the sick are healed by them. It's astounding. Here it happens to Peter, the apostle to the Jews. God is giving his thumbs up endorsement of Peter and Paul as apostles who carry on the ministry of Jesus. Well now here in Acts 5, crowds from the surrounding towns are bringing their sick and their demon possessed. This is exactly what happened for Jesus. And all of them are healed, exactly as happened in the gospels. It's God's way of showing he is still powerfully at work bringing new life to people through the apostles. They continue the ministry of Jesus who's in heaven. But of course, with popularity comes jealousy. It happened to Jesus. It happens here. The Jewish leaders, the high priests and the associates are filled with jealousy. And so they bring all their pressure to bear, to intimidate the apostles, to silence. This is an escalation, a ramping up of what we've seen before. Peter and John have already been in jail and arrested. Now it's all the apostles who are gathered and put in prison. But miraculously, it's only one verse, you might have missed it. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail, brought them out, and then commissions them. He tells them to stand in the temple courts and keep telling the people about this new life. This is uh, one of three miraculous escapes from prison, which are in the book of Acts. It's briefly told. There are only three. So miraculous escapes from prison are rare. We need to acknowledge that. Paul himself will later on spend years in prisons. What is this saying? It's saying the Lord won't always rescue his people from hardship. From time to time he does, in this case, for the purpose of evangelism, but not always. But here he does. So off they go. From daybreak the next morning, the moment the sun's cracking over the temple wall, there they are, the apostles in full flight in the temple courts teaching the people. And this makes for a very funny scene. The high priest, of course, thinks that he's in charge. He thinks that the apostles are silenced. And so in verse 21, he arrives with his entourage. He calls together the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They think they are the seat of power. And then this is meant to be a very intimidating scene. After all, this was the same group 
that had Jesus uh, condemned to be crucified only months beforehand. But then the apostles are sent for, and when they're sent for from the prison, oops, oh, they're not there. The jail was locked, the guards were at the doors, but when we opened them, there was no one inside. It's very funny, and everyone is at a total loss of knowing what to do. It gets even more funny, because right at that moment when the wind has been totally knocked out of their sails, someone comes in and says, hey, the guys you put in jail are now standing in the temple courts teaching the people, which is what they were put in jail for. You can imagine them sort of looking down from the terrace or portico where the Sanhedrin's gathered, kind of mouths open, you know, looking across, seeing the apostles preaching in full flight to crowds of people. Okay, if anyone's in any doubt about which group God is backing, the high priest and his Sanhedrin or the apostles, couldn't have been any clearer. The healings alone were enough to say God was with Jesus' apostles. But now they're out of prison. The high priest and the Sanhedrin, they're a laughing stock. So with all their force, all their power, it didn't make the slightest dent in God's plan to bring the message of new life to Israel through the apostles. Why is this recorded here? It's recorded to encourage us that if ever we are threatened or intimidated or bullied because of Jesus, we need to remember ultimately God is in charge and he will bring down those who are proud and he will lift up his servants. Well, the apostles are fetched by the temple guard without force. Suddenly the guard is aware that the ground has shifted in popular opinion. Uh, if they exercised force, if they rough-handled the apostles, the people would pick up stones and stone them. So the temple guards are afraid for their life. Anyway, so they gently lead the apostles in before the Sanhedrin, and now the aim of the Sanhedrin is to intimidate them by an appeal to power. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, in this name, and they also appeal to conscience. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, have a look very carefully at their words. I want you to see what they've, they have said and what they haven't said, because both are instructive. Okay. What they have said, well, that's revealing because we might recognize in their words what, often, what is often said today. What have they said? You must not speak about Jesus because it's against the rules and it makes us look bad. Isn't that the way? Christian, don't speak up about Jesus because you're breaking the rules, you're breaking the rules of our company, you're breaking the rules of your school, you're breaking the rules of your university, or you're breaking the implicit rules of our little social gathering. Friends don't speak about Jesus to one another. And, don't say anything which makes us look bad. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you'll know that there have been times when all you've had to do is to say you go to church and then suddenly someone feels judged, like you're looking down your nose at them and you're wanting to condemn them because they're, you're, they're, they swear or something like that. Uh, on Wednesday night, our family went out to the fringe and we saw a show. Afterwards, we were met by a man this big. He wasn't a dwarf, he was fully proportioned, but no joke, he was this big. I don't know, well, you call him a midget, I don't know what you call it. Anyway, and he was a comedian, and he had a little show in a caravan 
just next to the place where we were, and he was asking people to come in, $10 for a 15-minute show. Well, a few of us went in. Um, he began, you know, it was kind of funny, you know, you suspend some judgment, you know, at the fringe, sort of funny. And then, of course, he focuses in on Sally and picks out that there's a young girl, 18, my daughter, 18 years old, and her dad who is sitting there. And he said, is that your dad? Yes. What's your names? Chris, Sally. What do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm a church pastor. And suddenly you could see him kind of rolling through his whole repertoire, <laughs> editing out what he, I can't do smut, I can't do sex, I can't, can't you know. Which sort of pastor are you? What's your church denomination? Oh, Anglican. So then he had bagged the Catholics, right? <laughs> had some jokes. But I think it was a torture for him to get through those 15 minutes. He felt, he felt judged by us, be, by us being in his caravan. And I'm sure when he got out, he thought, oh, that was the worst show I've ever done in my absolute life. Anyway, uh, there you go. <laughs> What the high priest has said is, you're breaking the rules, you make us look bad. Um, did you see what he didn't say? Can you see what he's left out? There's the apostles, they've been speaking about Jesus. God has raised Jesus from the dead, he's the Jewish Messiah. What have they left out? Anything about Jesus, right? Um, they've avoided any talk of who Jesus really may be. Is he, is he or isn't he the Messiah? Or about what he did. Did he do those miracles? Did he really rise from the dead? In other words, they avoid the substance of Christianity. They avoid exactly the topic of what uh, Jesus and the, uh, sorry, the apostles are talking about. We need to see it and we need not to be surprised when this happens to us. You know, people who... They may be jealous, whatever reason. They may castigate you for not keeping the rules, for making people feel bad. But the one thing that I will avoid, like the plague, is any serious discussion of the substance of what Christians believe about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And so therefore, placed upon us is this great temptation and pressure to be silent about Jesus, about the substance. Have you felt that, silent, that pressure? Okay. Praise God for the apostles because they give us immense clarity. When they are feeling the pressure, what they do is speak. Look at verse 29. First, they deal with the charge about whose rules they're to keep. Well, we must obey God rather than human beings. End of story. Simply dealt with... <laughs> And then they deal with the substance. The God of our ancestors has raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You think you worship Israel's God. God has raised Jesus from the dead. You think you're the experts on what Jews should believe. God has raised Jesus from the dead. On the issue of whether they're guilty, Peter puts it straight. Uh, well, you were. You killed him. 
Now, of course, uh, when we speak to others, we're not speaking to people who themselves put Jesus to death, but we're speaking to people who, like us, are guilty before the Lord. Um, so that means we must not look down our noses at other people when we do it. So how do you do that? Last Sunday night, I was here. We had the Mark Drama performance, and I was able to speak to someone afterwards. And I was able to say, you know, I drew the short straw. I had to get to be the Pharisee. <laughs> um, but the scary thing is it was really easy to act. Isn't that terrifying? And then I said, but the thing about going through the rehearsals and the drama is I could relate to the dumb disciples, I could relate to the blind crowd, I could relate to every needy person who came to Jesus asking for healing or help, and I could relate to the Pharisees. The reality is, I am a mixture. And the Mark drama, what it does through the characters is holds up a mirror, really, of what we're like. And then the person I was speaking to was nodding, yes, that's true, um, they agreed. And then I was able to say this, the wonderful thing about the gospel is the very darkness that really the gospel ex, uh, exposes in the life of the Pharisee, because if you want to know how bad a human heart can be to remove God from the picture, you've only got to see what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They killed him. But that very darkness, which had Jesus condemned on the cross, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that that's what Jesus died to deal with. Isn't that astounding? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I was talking about guilt without punching that person up, but talking about the blackness of my own heart that we all share in, but how Jesus dealt with it. We don't need to shy away from talking about guilt, and we don't need to shy away from talking about Jesus. That's what Peter and the apostles show us. The high priest avoided speaking of Jesus. Peter goes straight in. The guts of what he says is, look, if you're wondering whose side God is, is on, yours or Jesus, it's very clear. God is on Jesus' side because although you had him killed, God raised him from the dead. In fact, God exalted him to his right hand as our prince and our saviour, which makes Jesus our hope because it's through him that repentance and forgiveness of sins comes to Israel and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they are very clear about this. They are witnessing about this and that's what we're doing as well. Now the reaction of the Sanhedrin to this was an exact repeat of their reaction to Jesus. Fury and an immediate desire to put them to death. But now we hear a voice of moderation piping up from the lips of an unlikely person, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And it's intriguing that so often we find God has placed in authority people who fear him enough to tone down the invective, to tone down the rhetoric, to tone down the outrage against Christians. We praise God for them. Well, here that person is Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? He was a Pharisee. Within the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council, there were two groups. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were the minority. Most people were Sadducees. Sadducees were materialists. They believed that what you saw was what was real. They were into power. They were into wealth. They were into status because this life was all that there was. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in life after death. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the scriptures. 
they were a lay movement. They weren't professional religious people. They were ordinary people who took obedience to the law of God seriously, so seriously they constructed other laws, and they were into money, that is true. But they were teachers, so if you're a Jewish person and you wanted to know how to get on in life and obey the law of the Lord, then you'd follow a Pharisee, you'd mimic him, you'd see them at table, you'd watch what they ate with, how they washed their hands, um, they, you'd hear their prayers, you'd, they were a living example, uh, you know, a teaching aid to you of what obedience to the law of the Lord meant, that's what they were meant to be. Gamaliel was the teacher of teachers, he was the teacher of Pharisees. Luke says he was honoured by all the people. And so Gamaliel, a man of immense standing, stands up in the Sanhedrin and says, just slow down. Think very carefully about what you're about to do to these men. I want you to put God into the equation. He said, you know Judaism has had a history of extremist movements. Think back a few decades. Judas, 4 BC. Judas the Galilean, 6 AD. Their movements came to nothing. If this is another extremist movement within Judaism, if it's just from men, from human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll find yourselves fighting against God. Isn't that remarkable? Okay. Now again, it's instructive on what Gamaliel has said and what he hasn't said. What he has said, quite rightly, is that the one key test of whether a movement is of God is its staying power. Will it last? Now it's not the only test, because I think there are movements which have lasted which are not of God. I would say Islam, for example. So it's not the only test, but it is a key one. Some of us are old enough to have lived through the different fads that have swept through evangelical Christianity in the last four or five decades. You must be baptised to be saved. You must speak in tongues to be saved. You must, to be a full Christian, you need to be slain in the spirit. You need to come under the Toronto blessing and laugh uncontrollably. Guess what? They didn't last. They're not of God. Here in Acts 5, belief in Jesus as the Messiah, at this early stage, it was still f viewed as a movement within Judaism. And Gamaliel, who's not a Christian, knew enough of God to know it would die out if it was simply made up by the disciples. Now, that's helpful for us, isn't it? Because sometimes you talk to people and they say, oh, the disciples just made it all up. Well, it wouldn't have lasted. Gamaliel gives the test of staying power. This week I messaged Tammy Davis, who's um, one of our gospel partners working with CMS in Tanzania. And I asked her about this passage, and she said, Tanzanians have a super strong sense of the unstoppable nature of the gospel. I think sometimes we in the West think we need to help it along because it's not as compelling as other things. They see various false teachers come up all the time. They just laugh at them, don't take them seriously because they are confident in God. Whereas in the West, we often, we're often very worried about combating them. I do think there's a place for combating them. Actually, Tammy went on to say that. But she says, I'm always fascinated in the Tanzania's assurances that false gospels will be shown for what they are and that God's purposes will win out because often it doesn't feel that way to me. She's speaking as a Westerner. 
What Gamaliel did say is that movements not of God ultimately will not last, the test of staying power. Now, did you pick up what he didn't say? In all those words of moderation and wisdom, what didn't he say? Well, exactly the same as the Sadducees. He didn't say anything about Jesus. He didn't say anything about the substance of what the apostles were saying, anything about whether what they were saying about Jesus was or wasn't true. You know, he could have set up and said, hang on, we need to listen to their message and we need to work it out. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if he did, we need to change the whole way we look at the world and at God. He avoids Jesus. Now, again, this is what happens, isn't it? Even when we hear so-called voices of moderation trying to tone down the slander against Christians. They don't deal with substance. Um, Think of the Q&A program on ABC. Sometimes they have extremist views. Sometimes there are voices of moderation. But what you'll almost never, ever hear, I haven't heard, is discussing the substance of the gospel. So how should we view the moderates? On the one hand, they are a godsend. On the other, they are still opponents. Have a look at verse 40. What happens when Gamaliel's voice, the voice of moderation, prevails? Have a look. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. That would have been 40 lashes, 39 lashes each. And then they ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, who knows the plans of God? The day before, when the apostles were arrested, God rescued them from prison miraculously. The next day, they're flogged. We cannot expect God to keep us from suffering all the time if we stand up for Jesus. There will be cost, as each of the apostles, of course, would come to know more fully in their lives as they'd give up their lives for him. In May, we'll be looking uh, forward to hearing from Maggie Cruz, who'll be coming and visiting our church. That will be wonderful. She has just moved to Cambodia to continue her work with street kids in her Hope uh, Hope for Justice campaign. I messaged her this week also to hear what her thoughts were on the cost. And she relayed one story which she uh, gave permission for me to tell about a time when she felt her life was in danger. She began her work decades ago in the Congo and uh, she was there during a time of internal strife within the country and there were armed rebels in control of the country and all the hospitals and clinics had shut down except the little Anglican one that she was working in as a nurse. And so that was a big go-to place for all the sick in the country. She said it was a place of physical and spiritual healing. Um, But they had a car and the rebels drove up uh, with their machine guns and they demanded to have the car and have the keys, but the keys are in Maggie's pocket. And she went and hid. And then they became more rough and more violent and machine guns were going off and she hid for hours in the drop loo beside the place where she was staying. Not a pleasant place to be. (laughs) She waited until uh, 
the yelling, the machine gun fire, the roar of the engines had subsided, waited another two hours and then came out. And she said her colleagues, of course, had it much worse than she did. But there was a time when her life was in danger if they, the armed gunman had found the Mogwanza, the white woman, I think that's how you say it, um, with the key, she would have been killed. On this passage, Tammy Davis said that often in the West, our main gospel revolves around how to avoid pain, doesn't it? We try and anaesthetize ourselves from pain. But if you look at verse 41, the flogging is not the issue, the pain isn't. It's the shame and disgrace of being publicly flogged, which is the issue. But even there, the, the apostles surprise us. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. This is very hard to grasp until you've been ridiculed for Jesus' sake. But then you realize, you know, what you just went through was a tiny taste of that which Jesus went through, the shame and humiliation he bore when he was pegged to a cross naked and just left to die total humiliation of someone and when it happens to you you realize strangely there's fellowship because you know that Jesus went through something greater of course but similar and they rejoiced that they could have fellowship with their Lord in that way did it quieten them did it shut them up verse 42 day after day in the temple courts and from house to house as well they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. This passage is about the new life that God brings us through Jesus, conveyed through the apostles. Um, we still have their message. We've heard it today, haven't we? We've heard their, what they proclaimed. It's about what God has done, about God having raised Jesus from the dead after he died on the cross. And I know that we hear the resurrection a lot, and I know it washes over us, but it's, a, it's breathtaking. I remember a few years ago, I was doing uh, with John Warner a high school seminar down at um, Brighton High for Easter, and we had a group of high school kids sitting there on the gymnasium floor, and I was talking to them I had, in a discussion group, and one of, I was talking about Jesus rising from the dead, and one of the girls said, when Jesus rose from the dead, did he come back as a vampire or a zombie? And I thought she was being, you know, sassy, but then I realized they are the only categories they have for the living dead. And then I thought it was a very smart question. And then I was able to tell her, no, she, he was neither. He broke those categories apart completely because he broke the back of death and rose again from the dead, completely restored, never to die again, never to be fearful, or you know, something that preys on someone else. We live in a culture which tries to immune ourselves from pain and death, don't we? But the reality is, and we've seen it, we've seen it this week, our nerve is only paper thin. <laughs> Toilet paper thin. You know, we try so hard, don't we, to avoid death. And God sends us into a frenzy. He puts into the world a little virus, a germ, and suddenly the shares drop 15, 
and 700 million people are in quarantine in China, and trade is going out the window, and universities don't know what to do, and we're worried about toilet paper. What does it say about our culture? Deep, deep down, we need a solution to death, don't we? We are worried, we are nervous, and we can bluster on and think everything's under control, but a germ will reveal the hysteria that will quickly follow. Guess what? Jesus has been raised. He has been exalted as prince and savior to bring repentance and forgiveness of, of sins to everyone. The apostles are witnesses of this. So is the Holy Spirit given to those who believe their message. New life comes to all who hear the apostles' message, the message of the gospel. Last Sunday night after the Mark drama, I told you I was speaking with someone and that person said as we were leaving, I feel like I have been reawakened. Wasn't that lovely? I pray for that person that they will come to know and trust Jesus. Well, as well as telling us that new life is found in the apostles' message, this chapter highlights external threats. They can be extreme, there can be laws. We've got laws on freedom of speech before our parliament. There can be imprisonment that may follow, depending on how the laws turn out. There's massive intimidation, that already exists. Threats can also be moderate. Gamaliel here is an opponent and a friend to the apostles. But we need to be savvy about moderate um, views. You see, whatever the outcome of our um, freedom of speech and freedom of religion legislation before the parliaments, it will be couched in a moderate tone as something that pleases everyone, all the minority groups. Just be savvy. Gamaliel pushed a moderate view and it was good temporarily, but only temporarily. Within one chapter, that view suddenly turns extreme. Not through Gamaliel, but through Gamaliel's chief disciple, Saul, who stood at the feet of those who were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Within only one chapter, that training, that mindset turns. Sobering. But it's not the note to finish on. We must finish where Luke takes us, where God takes us. With the thought that although we may suffer disgrace for Jesus' sake, there is joy in doing it. Now our passage begins with the authorities trying to silence the apostles' preaching. And they used everything they could to do it. But the chapter ends with the apostles never stop teaching, never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue the good news rolling out. Father, we praise you for those Christians who are in positions of power in our government, in our schools, in our universities, and we ask for them that in the positive way in which Gamaliel influenced um, the situation, they would do so as well. They would be voices uh, which would stand up for freedom of speech. But we pray that whatever happens, your Holy Spirit would give courage to your people everywhere. Um, pastors, leaders, uh, Christians in high places, and then everyone else 
that we would never stop teaching and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. In your name we pray, amen.